Mark, you want to come up and uh, give an announcement here? Um, real quick, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kirk Rogers, and I'm helping out with uh, Adult Ministries Academy of Faith. I'm an elder here at the church. So I uh, just want to kind of give you a quick update. So Rick is in the middle of his class, most of you that uh, have been attending that. Um, this church, First Press, is a long history of adult education. And we are blessed with a lot of people, um, members um, and friends of this church, who are gifted teachers. And so we get people like Rick, who's a professor out of Point Loma, to come and teach us. Um, we have our own pastor, Jeff, uh, who's not here today, so I ran up there to make sure what was going on. And he's got his computer there. He's taped his class, and he's got a student who's just going to press play. Um, <laughs> I should do that. I could be sailing, you know. <laughs> but now, I, I think until now when you're absent, you, you can't just be absent. You've got to do the class and send it, right? Know, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I just want to say that um, I, I thank you for trying to put into your daily Sunday rhythm coming to uh, Academy of Faith classes. We're kind of blessed now um, because now we only have one service and we're not exactly sure how long that, that'll last. Who knows, we might get a bunch of people and we have to expand again. But right now we don't have any conflicts with choir not being able to attend Academy of Faith, etc. So uh, some people might not be in that rhythm of hanging out after saying hi to some friends and then going to a Sunday school class. Right now, we will always try and have a class here and a class up in the West Tower. We also sometimes have extra classes. I saw Bob, Bob does his uh, grief share class. Uh, you just finished up, right, Bob? Is that what you finished up? And um, so sometimes there's maybe three, but there will always, we'll always try to have two. So right now, Pastor Jeff is doing a survey of the Old Testament, which he's uh, done a number of times, which I've, I've taken uh, before, great class. Um, and if you're in his class, but you're down here because you don't think he's here, he's actually here yeah, on the computer, so head on up. <laughs> but um, thank you for taking the time to make this part of your Sunday uh, and growing in your faith. And you know as well as I do, we can put up all the flyers in front of the urinals <laughs> telling about Sunday school that you want but what brings people to a class what brings people to worship is a personal invite so um, if you have a friend um, or maybe you sit next to somebody in worship and you notice that they're not showing up here and they, they might have a good reason why they can't be here but they might just not have really thought about it you know so uh, give them that invite, tell them about Rick's class. You know, each one of these classes kind of, you know, you can jump in any time. And, um, you know, our hope is, is that we're going to keep continue building this tradition that this church has had for a long, long time um, of supporting adult education. Uh, you know, there's a lot of churches around the, uh, the, 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 the nation, um, our, our county, where there's no adult education. It's just, churches just don't do it. So um, thank you for being here, spread the word, and if we keep getting more and more people, we'll just keep, we've got lots of rooms, we'll, we'll dig up more teachers. So uh, Rick, do you mind if I just open us with prayer real yeah. fast? And pray for Sue. I will. Yeah. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time to be together to study your word. We thank you for uh, Professor Rick and his willingness to come and share and, and help Help us to grow in our faith. We also pray for our sister Sue. We ask that you be with her, be with Hal, uh, be with all the doctors and the staff that will be attending to her. And if it be your will, we ask that you bring her back healthy and, and um, back in full ready-to-go mode. Dear Lord, we just thank you once again for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we live in a place where we have the opportunity to worship you, to study uh, your word. Um, without persecution, unlike lots of other places in the world. And dear Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I really like the single service that we're doing. I think it's, it's really good. And one of the nice things about it is we sing these great hymns. Yes. You know, we sang today, uh, Come Sing, O Church of Joy, which is just a great hymn, right? And the... Uh, chorus line 
if it has, if you call it a chorus line in a hymn, I don't know. Uh, in bold accord, okay, bold accord, all one, we come celebrate the journey now and praise the Lord. And this is, this is this thing we've been talking about is this, is this journey. He's this pilgrim and the church is a pilgrim and all creation is on pilgrimage. There's a journey to our ultimate end when God is going to, you know, roll up creation and fix it all. And the church will be one foundation in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be this sort of end point. Okay. And what that does in our class is help us understand and what we're sort of working with and what we'll work more with today is our job on earth is to sort of like do the best we can to come up with the best run our churches as best we can be the best church we can and we're going to have differences and stuff like that but we can trust that one accord will come you know we will all be one church eventually uh and right now we we sadly are, you know, this is the world of sin, and it's part of our sinful, broken-up world that we have. We have a lot of different churches with animosities and stuff, and we can hope that the that we will be in bold accord someday. Huh? Right? Isn't that cool? Bold accord. Not just accord. Bold accord. I like that. that but uh, I really do like these uh, one-one services. I love hearing the choir. Rodney's great. The, uh, uh, the... The guitar stuff. Don't you love Luigi? Yeah. I like Luigi, man. He just gets, you know. All right, go Luigi. And uh, and then uh, Jeremiah's there, you know, with his hair coming out of a mask, you know, playing the lead guitar. You got to love that, right? So so I just think it, it really is, uh, I think as a church, we're coming out of the COVID thing really strong, and, and we want to continue that. And hopefully this Calvin class will help that, because Calvin really does believe, uh, and we're going to talk, this is our class today, is to try and hold us together. Is We can be inspired around a book, okay? And last time we talked about this bookishness of Calvin, and we want to talk a little bit more about that today. And, you know, getting, I mean, there's the, it's one of the things that, there are many things that make us Christians weird, Okay. One is we think that the God who created all universes cares about us, okay? <laughs> you know, we can pray and get answers to prayer. And we're going to do a, a prayer one here somewhere. Yeah, down here. Uh, I just was reading in the Institute, this is a long section on prayer. Yes. <laughs> it's great. It's a really good long section on prayer. And, and uh, so we want to talk about that. And notice that Jerry is going to come in two weeks. And Jerry will teach the class. Uh, my boss over there, Ben, has got me doing something. And so, um, so uh, Jerry's going to teach. And hopefully you'll quiz him on, you know, why, you know, his story. Like, why, when did he become this convert? He's, you were Pentecostal to start, right? That's huge, man. Yeah, some people are like Islam to Christianity, but you're Pentecostal to Calvinism. My word, that's huge. So uh, we want to. You can hear Jerry on that one. I won't be here, sad to say, but um, but that would be a good opportunity to quiz Jerry, especially on because a lot of this class is Jerry has led this church to be more and deeply Calvinistic, and I think we need to discuss what that means and and especially see especially what that means for the bookishness, the, Christ, the our, our, our thing that makes... Okay, this was the second thing that makes us weird, is as Christians that we believe that somehow a book is what co should coordinate all of our lives, our politics, our international relations, our, everything. We believe that a book carries the Word of God. It's inspired in some way. There's a, it's not like any other book in the world. And so... This is the thing that Calvin, <coughs> much of the Reformation is about. Much of the Reformation is so, what this phrase, sola scriptura, which is an overstatement. No one can, you know, we, we're just going to, you know, that's what we'll, we'll, we can talk about. But this idea that, that a book will save Europe, a book will pull us together, a, a book can be the thing that helps us you know, head toward where we're supposed to be eventually with, with uh, uh, the ultimate accord of the church. So we want to talk about the, what this means about the book today and what Calvin thought. Yes? I would say a book that 
does not change because there's other religions that have books, yeah. but they are reinterpreted, yeah. they're added to, etc. But this is a book yeah. that does not change. And I agree with you completely, but we're going to get into today is there are little tweaks. Sure. There's, there's better <laughs> translations. <laughs> better translations. And this is what we want to talk about today a little bit. So this is where we're going. And uh, I keep switching these things around, I, some of you might notice. But I keep, like I, I thought last time, we didn't do enough with, with, the, with the Bible. And so we want to talk more about it today. Now, uh, so we're Europe and in an inspired book. And mostly we're dealing with Europe at this time. The Reformation, in a weird way, is very tightly enclosed. Uh, it's not dealing with Egyptian Christianity like you guys are talking about down in the sermon today. And it's not dealing with, you know, the Christian mission. There's not even a big emphasis on Christian missions to China and stuff. The Je Catholics are doing that, you know, with the Jesuits going all over the world. The Protestants are mostly concerned about Europe, you know, and, and they're tied in with a very sort of, We've got to get Europe right, and then we can sort of lead the world sort of thing. So it's an interesting thing about the, the, uh, the Reformation, that it is a rather geographically tight thing. Now, this is Erasmus, one of the great, you know, really brilliant men of world history. And uh, the, he was surrounded, the Reformation is, is, is part of this renaissance, right? This around 1500. We call it a, a renaissance, a rebirth. A lot of smart guys all in one place, you know? And most of them are guys. There's a lot of women there too, but the, the, the educational systems were sort of opening up and a lot of people came to the fore who are, you know, Luther's not just some wild monk. He's actually a pretty highly educated professor of theology, you know? Calvin is this guy who had trained himself as a lawyer, but then but then turns himself into this greatest Bible interpreter of the time, you know? And then, and then you have guys like Erasmus, who's Catholic, Roman Catholic, who's, who's we, need to, we need to study our Greek more, spend years studying our Greek and Hebrew better. And there's other scholars who are much better on the Hebrew. And they devote their lives to this, this very narrow sort of language study of, you know, like we talked about last sermon, you know, is about a comma, you know, and where these commas go and how that works. And so the uh, Reformation is, in, in a real way, a type of Reformation led by highly educated people who are working with the text, okay? And so that's what we want to sort of keep that focus on, okay? And, and so Calvin, I like this. This is a kid's book, I think. Yeah, yeah. young readers. I like that. He seems nicer. <laughs> yeah. 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 See, that's <laughs> there. He goes. That's this is the kind. See what he's doing is transcription here. Like there's text. Here's you know, and he's this is this is what we're talking about today. Is how tightly he's so bookish, right? Um, he's not. He's not a theologian in the big way, and we can talk more about that, and, and, and we can, maybe the term theology needs to be different, but, uh, well, I'll bring it up here, like, you bring up Karl Barth today, Karl Barth, to me, is the essence of a theologian, which means that why I hate theologians, um, he allows himself to just speculate off, you know, he takes the notion of the word, and, and sort of squishes out the Bible, and it becomes sort of a vague term, and then he becomes this, you know, and, and so he, there's a lot that Bart said that is, I think, good, but the whole package is leaving the Bible behind. You disagree? Uh, he has more Bible in his footnotes than more, most theologians have in their main text. But does he believe in the actual historicity of the use of the Bible for history? Because he, he takes on a lot of people about the history of, in the Bible. And we historians don't want to, we do it. He took on the left, mostly. He came out of it and took him on. He did. He, took, he, he was fighting Kant and the German tradition. He's a Swiss. Those Swiss guys are always up there doing stuff. And then, uh, um, yeah. And so, this is where Jerry and I differ. And you guys can think this out yourself. I haven't read anybody since Calvin. He's the modern. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but I, read, I read 
you know, Bart, and I get mad at him because he has, <laughs> he has turned, he has, he has turned things into vague, he, he makes things more vague, and he's not doing this, he's, he's actually letting his mind speculate, okay, as to, and become very logical, and in doing that, I think Bart's a big old problem. <laughs> now this is this is the fun where uh, the, uh, when I say the church, I hope that the heavens got some of the duking out over these questions because that's sort of fun. Uh, it, when we all are accord, we can all disagree about certain things. But I, uh, one of the things that I want to show you right now is that is that Calvin is someone who thinks that the mind wanders too much. And we also have to be very afraid of our minds. Uh, that our minds, they love to just sort of speculate and follow logic. And what you have to do is you have to have an anchor that holds those, that mind down. And that, that anchor is the Bible. Okay? And he's very interested in the literal text of the Bible. Not, letting, not doing some sort of redefinition of things so it can sort of like float away. So, I uh, wanted to bring this up. Marie, where'd you go? There you are. Okay, what did you learn about this passage here? Let me just interrupt for a second. I'll just point this out. So this is your standard NIV Bible, which is a good, solid translation. Most every Bible, most every modern Bible, maybe not King James, but uh, has a, uh, some sort of glitch, some sort of footnote like this here. And what Maria is explaining is why this footnote exists and why there's some words actually removed uh, in, in verse... Uh, see how 7 is so short? Right. There was actually another added part there. And uh, it got removed from the Bible because of Erasmus. Supposedly says, uh, I think, it says, three bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And the reason he did not put yeah. that in is because up until the fourth century, um, it was not in the Greek manuscripts. Yeah. Um, and after that, it was only a few, or it was in the margin. Right, it's a, it's a, it's a, this is, this is what we're talking about, these bookish pilgrims, okay, is they believe very strongly in our Bible, but they, they, we need to make that Bible uh, as pure as we can, okay, and so this textual scholarship, what Erasmus had done, exactly like Marie's saying, is that you look back in, like, St. Augustine, talk, he writes a big book on the Trinity, he never mentions this verse. And so, dang it, you know, uh, if this verse was there in the Bible back in St. Augustine's time, he would have used it, you know. And so then he starts to look, where does this first verse show up in text and stuff and finds it a pretty recent thing. And it's pretty much agreed upon by everyone that it's probably best to read this without that, to actually remove a sentence about the three or one, the father, son, word, spirit. So, so that's what the footnote is there. This is the, uh, what we do with the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we almost always get a footnote or something there at the end because, you know, uh, some later, some late manuscripts uh, have, no, yeah, uh, 13 is here, is, is, or from evil, some late manuscripts have, uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, amen. Now, most of us do the prayer with that ending, but that's actually not in what we think is the text of the Bible. So, so the thing is, is, what I'm pointing out is, this is the kind of work Erasmus, Catholics, Protestants, a whole bunch of folks are, are really putting the project to, which is, which is at the foundation, really, of much of what's going on in the Reformation. Uh, Luther will translate the Bible into German, you know, and so you'll get a German translation. And, and uh, so even languages in general are, are, like the French language is heavily oriented 
toward the language of Calvin. When Calvin wrote the Institutes in France, or in French, it was so widely read that Calvin's way of speaking French helped unify the nation. Same happens with Shakespeare. And so you get, uh, in the 16th century, a lot of languages actually consolidating into the forms we think of today because, you know, these textual scholars were at work. Okay. Yeah, Daniel. Do you know what language the Geneva Bible was written in? I would think French, right? Yeah, it's in English. It's disseminated because it's English, but it was French. It, yeah, Geneva, the language in Geneva is French. French. So it was written in English. Yeah. So it's the one that the... It's based on Tyndale's. Those, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's written in Yeah. And one of the beautiful things in uh, language studies, history studies, is, is that uh, the Bible is read by everybody. And so it's so important. These translations are, are crucial for us uh, in, the, in the way we even understand language anymore, you know, because the Bible has transformed our history more, more than we've transformed the Bible. And the Bible's just this amazing thing. Any questions about this further? Just, yeah. I'm just wondering about Zwingli. Wasn't he Swiss and did he translate the Bible? Did Zwingli translate? I'm glad Jerry's here. Did Zwingli translate the Bible? I don't have to because uh, Zwingli is German and Luther, Luther was doing the work. Okay, Luther did, Luther did the German translate. But Zwingli's up in the Swiss. He's, he's, in, he's in Zurich, but he's German speaking. Okay, okay. okay. yeah. It's that weird. It's that weird Switzerland thing. When, yeah. when you go to Switzerland, the, the Germans speak here, the French are there, and the Italians are there, you know, and they really share a lot of language up there. All right, let's move on. All right. Yes. Oh. Just comment. Um, the faithfulness of our translations is that we have those footnotes. Right. Because we don't, like, for instance, just totally take this out no. and, okay, we don't like this verse, mm -hmm. it's gone. Right. Okay? We keep it mm -hmm. in there because the ending of the Lord's prayer doesn't change the Lord's prayer. No, doesn't no. doesn't change the meaning no, of it at all. No. And the faithfulness of these translations is that we deal with these things. We don't just say, yeah. you know, take a, a right. red pen and say, okay, right. that's gone. Right. That's gone. We don't like this list of sins. Right. Those are gone. Right. We Which we do with what is. Yeah, we do that today. <laughs> but, but, uh, but you're right, and, and uh, you're bringing up a great point, is... is uh, and I, I remember Kirk giving a class on this. We deal with the whole council of the whole Bible. And so, therefore, we are not building theology off of one phrase, one word, one thing like that. So we are, you know, this is the faith uh, that we can fix little, tweak little things that are in the Bible without changing the purpose of the Bible, the message of the Bible, you know. We certainly, but, you know, uh, um, We'll get into this in a second when we talk about the term inerrancy. We want to get there here soon. Is, uh, is some people will use this as a means to undermine the Bible. Of course it's not inerrant because look at that, you know, that kind of thing. And so we'll deal you with that. You understand that's a TV. <laughs> you can't, that's, not, that's not one of those screens. It's just black. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, first of all, Okay, a little uh, fun, fun quote from Calvin, and you see these all throughout the, uh, the Institutes, is, is, and this is uh, one of, I, I throw this out as an example of what I am saying, okay, which is that uh, uh, he's talking about the Trinity. This is a section on the Trinity. And he goes, uh, he recommends, okay, go read Augustine on the Trinity. And Augustine lived around the year 400, okay, Indeed, it is far safer, and that's the key, it's far safer to stop with Augustine's description of the Trinity, okay, uh, than by subtly penetrating into the sublime mystery and wander through many effacent speculations. A lot of Calvinism is about keeping our taking the road that is safer. Okay, we don't want to let our minds wander into all these speculations. We need to be safer. And how are we going to be to be safer? Is stick as closely as we can to the Bible 
and also with the great biblical interpreter, interpreters of the past, Augustine being a crucial one, who helps us understand a very mysterious concept such as the Trinity. Okay? So, the key there is, is, this is where he's, if you want to call Calvin a theologian, which a lot of people do, I will say he's a theologian, but he's a good theologian because he's worried about his brain. You know, he's worried that his mind is going <laughs> to cause trouble out there. So, this is another passage. It was this one we looked at last time, okay? He saw the minds of men all tossed and agitated, okay? This is uh, uh, Calvin writing, okay? And then he says, he says, so what is, you know, the minds are prone to wander, and then a scripture, the Bible, fences us in, it acts as spectacles so that we can read better. And the, the Bible is this special gift to us. Because as Paul says, and a lot of people believe, is you know, you look at the book of nature, you look at creation, and you go, wow, I learned about the glory of God. Wow, I learned about the love of God, the beauty of God, all sorts of things. I, I feel the greatness of God out there watching the sunset. But we need more information. You know, we... So the Bible is a special supplement to what is sort of an intuitional sort of sense of, of our knowledge of God. Okay? And, uh, well, let's, let's stop there. Any questions about that? We're going to go into this a little bit more, but... Rachel, you agree disagree? I agree. <laughs> Why do you read the Bible, Rachel? Yeah. And I read because he interests me. Yeah. He helps me yeah. to stay focused. Because I can yeah. go way off. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really do come back. Yeah. 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 Lloyd, stick with her. <laughs> no. No, this is the this is great. This is great. Because this is this is one of the things that see the the, the Bible is a special gift to us. Because, in fact, you can't know about Jesus looking at a sunset. You can glorify God. You, you know, people who think that, you know, worship, that's fine. You know, you can look at a sunset. But a sunset is not going to teach you the Jesus' parables or, you know, your, you know, things like this. The things that we need to know. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of things that God wants to tell us that's in the Bible. Yes. Yeah, yeah, good sermon today about how, the, how the, the suffering of Christ is at the center of how we should actually perceive our lives, to be sh in shared suffering. Yeah. And, and seriously, one, one, one thing that I'm very pleased with about my bride reading the Bible is because, <laughs> as you indicated, like Calvin was uh, trying to fight against speculation. Yeah, yeah. He says, stop. He says, yeah. this is it. And many times Rachel will read to find the truth yeah. when on issues that the world speculates yeah. about. And yeah. I'm very, very yeah. proud and yeah. pleased that she does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it, not just that, but Lloyd has come to this church and many times helped this church say, You guys are really confused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you what the Bible yeah. is. Yeah. The Bible is there to pull us back, to fence us in, to give us spectacles to see better, to give us information that we need in our Christian life. Uh, yes, the God is the creator of all, and we can do a lot by intuition, but we cannot, we cannot know what we need to know without that Bible. You know? Yeah? I have to add that uh, to go along with this uh, theme of suffering, Christ himself really focused his ministry on those who in biblical times were considered the dregs of right. society. Yeah. You know, people who were right. like, I guess if you had a disease, right. you know, we don't want to have anything to yeah. do with you. Yeah. And he did his healing. And, yeah. you know, the tax collectors yeah. were considered yeah. anathema in the yeah. community. Yeah. That Bible has been great for doing exactly what you said. The church will get rich and rich, and that's part of the Reformation. The church is getting so rich, and hey, that Bible is saying we got to 
focus on the poor. We've got to focus on the weak, the suffering. Yes. I think if you look back at the times of Jesus and what he said about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scholars of the period <laughs> yeah, and yeah. where they had taken yeah. Revelation yeah. to that point, yeah. to a whole set of laws yeah. and all that kind of yeah. thing, yeah. I think uh, that's an example yeah. of what we, what happens when we right. do our own. Right. This this is the great danger that Calvin, in many ways, of the institutes is trying to help us with, is so that we don't become Pharisees. And that's always been, you know, hey, don't become a Pharisee. Pharisees take the law and then sort of build on it and chase it and become logical about it and push it, push everything into a box or a corner where, hold it now, hold it now, you know, you got to pull back. So that's where a fence, you know, the Bible is a fence to keep us from being Pharisees, you know. Uh, grace keeps pulling us back from being overly oriented toward the law, things like that. Let me go on here for a bit and uh, let's talk Catholics. <laughs> First of all, okay, I talked this before, okay. This is the Pope who's there when Calvin sort of converts and decides he's going to be a Protestant. By, by all historical standards, this guy's a very good Pope. He is trying to reform the church. He is supporting Erasmus. He is, he is doing a whole bunch of things to do what Calvin is doing, which is to try and say the church has allowed itself to... to to, to go into weird directions and, and all sorts of odd things are happening like with Mary and things like that. And so we need to educate the clergy better so that we can then get, get our foundations in the Bible stronger. And he's, so that's one of the things he's really supporting is to build a better church. So we have what's called a, a Catholic reform movement that goes along with the Protestant reform movement. Now, when Calvin is older... And he is now succeeding in running Geneva, <coughs> not running Geneva, but he's, he's the principal character in Geneva. The Pope is Pope Paul III. This guy, too, by all standards, is one of the most dynamic, best popes in all history. Okay? <laughs> uh, it is under him that the, the uh, well, we'll get here, I'll tell you. And then this, uh, this, of course, these two guys are working together to try and reform Europe also. Okay, this is Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And so I made up a little thing here. Pope Paul, okay, so in, in 1536, Calvin publishes the Institutes, okay, which is his book to try and help us understand that Bible way better. Pope Paul, at the same year, invites a committee of nine uh, humanists, these are these highly educated people, <coughs> to report on best ways to reform the church. And they... This is where you're pushing toward the creation of a, a council, the, this Council of Trent. So the year after, uh, this, this is a bull published by the Pope uh, is to, um, and approved by Emperor Charles. So the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope are to express the gross abuses and proposing all sorts of reform for the Catholic Church, stuff that... Calvin would agree with to a certain extent, you know, but the, the, both the impetus, the motives of both. We've got to fix this church. This church has gone wacky in many ways. And so, 1538, Paul uh, excommunicates, you know, this story with Henry VIII. Guy's gone wacky with his wives, you know. No, I'm not going to give you an annulment for a marriage you've had for a number of years. And so that's part of the reform movement. Uh, 1540, he establishes the Society of Jesus, which is the greatest missionary organization for the next 400 years. You know, this is going to go around the world spreading the gospel, okay, and also work to encourage Europe to be uh, stronger focused on it. You know, this is why you have all those colleges named Loyola and high schools named Xavier, and you know, these are all Jesuit institutions. The Jesuits were going to educate the people and the clergy so that we can be better focused on our Bibles and stuff. Uh, this is the time of Calvin's leadership in Geneva. And in 1547, the Pope oversees the first eight sessions of the Council of Trent, which extends further on. And just to, this is what the Council of Trent under Pope Paul III says about the Bible. And we can see in this the difference with the Catholic Church, but at the same time, a, a similar impetus, okay? 
uh, keeping this always in view, that errors being removed, like, you know, that little stuff we had talked about earlier, removed from the text, the purity itself of the Gospels be preserved in the church, which before promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first promulgated with his own mouth. We're getting the words of Jesus in the text and then commanded to be preached by his apostles to every creature. Here's, you know, Calvin's great emphasis is on the preached word. Council of Trent, very much big emphasis on the preached word. Um, as a fountain of all, both saving truth, moral discipline, and seeing clearly that this truth and discipline are contained in the written books. So you're not supposed to be preaching any wild stuff. You're supposed to be preaching out of the written books. Uh, and, and this is what's different, the unwritten tradition, which received by the apostles, you know, this is the apostles, you know, all the books, both Old and New Testaments, seeing that one God is the author of both the Old and New Testament. Okay? And so, I could go on here, but this, these are uh, very much stating that a type of sola scriptura doctrine, okay, that the Catholic Church is going to be built upon the Bible, okay, but also traditions which are interpretive traditions of the Bible afterwards. And then uh, this is where also, you know, many of us know is, is the Council of Trent decides that the best thing is that everybody use that Latin version of the Bible, which is the Vulgate, okay? And it's in that Latin version of the Bible they put it together. The Latin version has those extra books called the Apocrypha, you've heard, stuff like that. Uh, the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Bible, has more R books, you know, that don't have those apocryphal books like Maccabees and stuff like that, Judith. Their, so their Bible is a little different. They affirm an apostolic tradition which helps us understand the Bible, and then at the same time, they're rooting, everything has to be founded in the Bible, okay? This is the Council of Trent, which at the same time as, as Geneva with Calvin and the Institutes is trying to do a similar type of thing, which is let's fence ourselves in, let's keep our spectacles on the Bible, and the Bible will help us know the right things to do. Yes? Rick, what would your take be? How... How much did the Reformation push the Catholic Church into these yeah. re in reforms? Yeah. You talk about the two popes. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you think they would have yeah. been going down this yeah. road as much yeah. as they did if the Reformation would have taken place? You see, you know, this is what keeps us in business. That's historians, you know. I know. No, uh, the standard sort of way we think about this today is there reform movements really began back in the 12th and 11th centuries. You know, there's the Crusades are going on, and, and we got to pull back from the Crusades. We, uh, St. Francis of Assisi back in, you know, would be a, a type of reform movement. Uh, and so there's 300 years of reform movements that are out there and working but this is the culmination of uh of that 300 years is so so the catholics uh would not consider themselves merely responding to recent events but on the other hand recent events had certainly blown all this up and charles v is saying okay come on pope paul we we need to we need to nail this thing down nail down what we want to reform and like, so that's what happens like, here. Like anything, any reform movement, my take was, is that when it, the Reformation really started getting going, in the early part, the Catholic Church was just kind of like, yeah, it'll go, and yeah. it'll die yeah. out, it's not a big deal. But once they saw it really yeah. starting to gain momentum, yeah. they had to make a yeah. move. Yeah, and do yeah. Something. yeah, and... and one thing you guys have all, I'm sure, realized is that I'm not dealing with the violence and the mobs and the wars and the battles and all. There's a whole wars of religion that come out of this, too. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bad time. But, but there is, at the core of it, what Calvin is trying to do is say, let's focus on the Bible. The Bible can be the center of our reform. And it is exactly, it's similar 
in, in focus to what the Catholics said at the same time, is that the Bible can be the thing that pulls us all back together again. Yes? I, I was just wondering, but, but the difference is it not that, that they were putting the Bible into the people's language so they could read them themselves, and this was only the clergy yeah. that could read it, yeah. and then in the yeah. sermons interpret it to yeah. the people, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, well, you, 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 we don't want to be over tight with that. Uh, educated people can read the Bible, oh, okay, but we want them to read it in this version. Okay. okay, this is the authoritative version. Okay, the Protestants are much more interested in let's you know come up with other Bibles, uh, translations in the vernacular and stuff. There were um, Christian movements, uh, Catholic movements, which were very much oriented toward the vernacular. Uh, the Franciscans. And the uh, Dominicans were especially oriented toward the vernacular, you know, preaching to the people and stuff like that. And so, so uh, I wouldn't say it strictly. But yeah, yeah, they're, they are a little worried, which I think we would all agree with is probably true, is that you, is that, you know, this is what we saw in Waco, Texas, right? Is, <laughs> is where some guy reads the Bible for himself and comes up with a, a cult and it goes crazy. I mean, both the Protestants and the Catholics agree that's that's not gonna happen. We can't just let people read that Bible and do whatever they think. You know, we've got to. The Bible is a fence, but we've got to read that Bible correctly and well. You know, yeah, yeah. Bear, Jerry, so we need to remember. Maybe you went over this, but by Vulgate, all we mean by that is common. Yeah, Jerome's work in making the Vulgate. Put in Latin, which was language that people yeah. spoke then. Now, yeah. much later, it's only what the educated and elite speak. Yeah, right. So it kind of yeah. this common yeah. thing is yeah. far less common. Yeah. But his work was to take Hebrew. Christians weren't speaking yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. To take Greek, the whole West yeah. didn't know Greek, right. and put it in a language yeah. that people could read it. That's that's the year four hundred. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, a very yeah exactly what Jerry is saying is true. Is we read this and go, oh man, you're sticking it. There's only a few people I know who can read Latin. Back then, this is as best a popular cultural written language as you can get. It's a frontier language, Latin is, you know. And, and it's guys like Erasmus who are sitting there going, oh, you've got to read it in the Greek to know it. And the Catholic Church is saying, no, you don't have to know Greek. You know, we, the, you know this could, Latin. Yeah. I was raised Catholic, and they were bringing me to the Catholic Church when I was three or four. I remember it was in Latin. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, I think I was about five or six. I was born in '61. They changed it to English. I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Vatican II that changed the And and yeah, uh, and that was a good change because the Latin language had become much less accessible. But we still want to point out that this, uh, both Calvin and the Catholics are going to emphasize an educated clergy. You don't just feel the spirit and call yourself. A clergyman, you know, you're supposed to get the liberal arts education, the grammar, you know, you're supposed to be especially able to read and write. That's why Jerry's robe that he wears is an academic gown. Wow. Now, the extra stuff that you add to it is church stuff, but the actual black robe, that was the sign that you were passed through your liberal arts education. So, you know, it's a I like ropes. I think. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it solves the problem of what to wear on Sunday morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, a question. But this, this in the Catholic Church made possession and reading of the other Bibles illegal. Wow. Not. At least, yeah, at least in Spain. Let's put it that way. Uh, Maybe not other places. But it, did yeah. Calvin do the same? Did he yeah. say. No. Well. He, that he, the. Vulgate no. was illegal? I don't think so. No, no, no he's. Right. I yeah. Mean, people no. were, you know, in yeah. this yeah. time period, people were killed yeah. for possessing yeah. a non Latin version wow. of And a lot of, a lot of the uh, issues that are about those kinds of stories are the uh, issues of controlling this large bureaucracy. Right. You have a lot of bishops in local areas who you know, do a lot of crazy stuff. And then Spain does, Spain, yeah, Spain, Spain's a hard place because it's, it just gets all full of the spirit. And so the Spanish Inquisition and other things get started in Spain. And Spain, 
Spain does a lot of really bad stuff, even when Charles V is trying to calm them down, you know? So, but I think just like underneath this, yeah. this is like, okay, this yeah. Yeah. is the only real word, yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. these versions yeah. coming out of this. Yeah. So it, you yeah. know, is saying that all the reformed, right. you know, Luther and all that stuff that's going on are not authorized versions. Yeah, and I think what you're, that you're, you're. not much difference than the uh, writers of the King James Version. Once they finish it, the point was, this is it now for English yeah. speakers yeah. in our kingdom. Yeah. This is the one you'll be reading yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think what you're properly pointing out is, is too, that this is a document heavily oriented toward that the church is in charge. And one of the things about the Reformation is that it's just, you know, priesthood of all believers. It's a sort of like, yeah. like yeah. you know, we gotta, we're not going to let the, the church be so in charge of things. But this is a type of dynamic. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that goes in a lot of ways. And my point is simply to, to show you that uh, this is, a, if we're all going to have bold accord one day, you know, the bold accord is that the Bible is our, our foundation of where we have information about Jesus, about end times, about, about all these questions we have. Go to the Bible. And then we have people like Jerry who are highly trained Bible interpreters who are, at, and Jerry, one of the great things we love about Jerry is that he feels fenced in by the Bible to teach the Bible as the Bible presents itself rather than be a pastor who sort of wanders out there and teaches extra things or something like that. Okay. And, uh, okay, uh, let's, let's move on here. So, I'll give you a couple, you know, I, I showed you this last time. This is a very fun statue I saw in a French cathedral. And this, this is a very common thing you see a lot, is the church built on the Old and New Testament here. See, this is the idea of Catholics always, is the church is built on the Bible. It's not some random thing they get to create. And then let's go to this and, uh, and then see some things here. That This is what we talked about. The invisible church and the visible church. And what Calvin criticizes is that the Catholic church is putting itself up there in this realm, saying we know how to get there. And he's saying, no, you know, with a lot of things the Catholic church we disagree with. Now, this becomes, in many ways, what gets, you know, uh, oh, so much of the discussion is, is about, is we know that that's going to be, you know, uh, but that's largely invisible. That's, that's unknowable. It's beyond human language. And God has given us guidance. He's, God is actually at work guiding, which is great. Also, the incarnation, Jesus, he sends Jesus down to us. And so Jesus is, breaks into this visible world down here among us. We have this strange word, the logos, you know, but it, it is sort of like into the structure of creation is a type of you know all creation sings the glory of god so creation will speak through the logos reason we have our minds and so our minds will will help us know things you know but we got to be careful that minds is the biggest wild card in here uh but we have biblical revelation okay that's our strongest stuff and then we have confirmation of our lives with jesus and answered prayers and things like that then we have miracles Sacraments, you know, and, and the two things that, that, uh, that Calvin emphasizes are, are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments here. And then uh, uh, for Augustine and, and others, there's signs of truth all around us. You know, it's take, study a plant, be a botanist, and botany will teach you the glories of God and stuff like that about creation. So... So there's a lot of ways that God is, is helping the visible church figure things out, right? But the real key here is, is how do we handle that? And so for Calvin, and I would submit for the, for the Roman Catholics too, they both recognize themselves on what this book here, the, what we talked about is this, this journey we were on a journey to the ultimate church. Uh, so the, the best of Catholicism does not assert that it is actually in charge of 
you know, knows what's going on in heaven or anything like that. Uh, one of the biggest problems for the Protestants is this verse, uh, you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Calvin will deal with it. Everyone will talk about that verse. And the Catholic Church takes this more serious, that the apostles, Peter, have the keys. And what this key is, is, you know, does that key give us some sort of access or influence on that realm? That's a big Reformation fight. But what I want to focus on now is this, this idea of scriptures. And so uh, let's end with uh, talking about these words just real quickly here. And, and, and then you can throw out what you like. <laughs> uh, we mentioned this last time. A Westminster Confession uses in English the term infallible. Okay. Uh, the, uh, there's been a recent push especially in terms of pr promoting accuracy, the, you know, that the scriptures are full of all sorts of accuracy, uh, that they use the term inerrant. Uh, the word inspired is the biblical term, you know, that the God breathed, you know. And then we also talk about, should we be, read the Bible literally, which I think is the weirdest of all of these. Literally is, yes, how else can you read but by letters? I mean, you read by something other ways, you know? Uh, there's no other way than to read literally. Uh, but, you know, people mean by that, some often they, they attach into that all sorts of expectations and assumptions. And then we have a, especially a question of reliability and authority of scriptures. Okay? And I think that all of us as, as Christians in this church committed to the scriptures should sort of like figure out how we work with these words. And these are the words that the Calvinist tradition uh, does work with. Uh, this is, you know, my, my favorite looking guy uh, here. This is J.I. Packer. And he, he writes, I too once avoided the word inerrancy uh, because he likes to sound positive. And the inerrancy is a negative term. It sort of throws people off in the face. But I found nowadays in our modern world, uh, he wants to use the word inerrancy. I hear folk declare scripture inspired and in the next breath say it misleads from time to time. I hear them call it infallible and authoritative and find that they mean by that that its impact on us and its commitment to which it leads us will keep us in God's grace, not that it is all true. So he wants, he's struggling for a word that really sort of pounds the anchors the the inspiration of the scripture and uh, uh, so he goes that's not enough for me I want to safeguard the historic evangelical meaning of these three words and make my intention as a the faithful disciple of Jesus Christ to receive the father and son scriptures when properly interpreted that is understood from within it when the Bible sort of interprets itself and works within itself that the he then says he likes the term inerrancy Okay. Yeah. That's my teacher. I know. Well, let's let's go to you, Jerry, right now. This, Jerry, what words yeah, do he you? He looks worse than that in person. Who is this? I just. This is J. I. Packer, and I just I just want to look like that someday. Yeah. Yeah. I got to move where somewhere cold where you can wear tweed all the time. Um, so, Jerry, Jerry, okay, what terms do you like to best describe the Bible in yeah, I, this I way? Because I, I, officers here in the, in, the, in the room, we signed on to Westminster. Yeah. That's its word. But yeah. it, look at the depending on inerrancy. The foreword's by J.I. Packer. That's my Reformed Theology teacher at top. The bottom's Norm Geisler. Mm -hmm. That's my teacher. Um, as well, it was a big deal at Trinity when I was there, and the Bible College I went mm -hmm. to. What I saw, and I know what Jay is talking about, why he, for a long time, avoided the word, is that it's it's been used as a shibboleth. It's been used to divide the men from the boys. And inerrancy, yes. Yeah, inerrancy. And it's, if you're not inerrancy, then you're not with us. Yeah. Period. And it's that whatever it is, political ecclesial use that I think is off. So I don't lead with that. It knocks yeah. out yeah. Augustine. It knocks out C.S. Lewis. It knocks yeah. out right. people for whom that's right. not a word. Inerrancy was a word defined by Francis Turretin 
second generation from Calvin. His father knew Calvin, uh, Swiss Reformed theologian in Geneva. And his idea of inerrancy was simply this. The stars move. We don't need to be much of an astronomer. They're not always in the same place every night. The North Star doesn't. It's always north. It doesn't wander. It's inerrant. Yeah. Yeah. It stays right there. Yeah. The Bible is like that. It stays yeah. right there. Yeah. Everything else shifts yeah. around it. That's a beautiful definition. Yeah. It came to be mean. <coughs> math is always right. Its history is reliable. Well, its yeah. math is always right. Its history is reliable. That's not the first thing to say about the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. First thing to say about the Bible is it's from God and it won't fail you. <laughs> okay. All right. Dan, what words do you like? Um, boy, I really don't want to follow Jerry. It's time to go. Um, the authority and reliability of Scripture is what I'm most comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Part, of, part of the thing is when you have the end at the beginning of these, there's a type of like, pushing someone into a corner or something and I just uh, they because then you're sort of challenging them to come up with a fallible thing or an error or something they call it you know yeah, yeah yeah Sue you have something I was just gonna say that a lot of those words have become loaded just like the, the word evangelical yeah. so there's I think there's a lot of parallels so yeah. we get a little scared about using some of those words yeah. because yeah. we're not even I can't remember all the arguments yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. You know, it's funny because before I became a Christian, actually when I was growing up, you know, I had some pretty strange notions about what it meant to be a Christian. And one of the big ones was the inspired. We thought, well, the Bible was only written by men. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, yeah. It, it, not, yeah. Yeah, that inspired causes trouble sometimes. Can I add something to your list? You betcha. The Book of Order says the scriptures are the only Rule for faith, yeah. And I like that. It's yeah. the only thing against which we measure right. our yeah. faith. A ruler right. type of rule. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. That's I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, 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 exactly. Yeah. If we want to, if we want to see yeah. how we're doing in our faith, we yeah. go to the Bible. If you yeah. want to see how we're doing in yeah. the way we live, we go to the Bible. And that's where we use the Bible as a fence, as spectacles, like Calvin is talking and, about. And, the and really all those other things. And, yeah, and, and we got to, got to work with it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick. And the Psalms are the binder, mm -hmm. you know, like a binder of a book. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you want to see where your walk is, in, in the world. you guys are coming up with your own words here, man. Come on, you know. <laughs> anyway, John, which one do you like the best? Uh, I would say uh, the reliability uh, for me is. Uh, I'm a historian. Yeah. It's not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the reliability word a lot. There's a great book uh, called The Reliable, Historical Reliability of the Scriptures, which is at the foundation of so many people's frustration with the Scriptures is, you know, can we trust it? And yeah, trust it. Reliable. It's reliable. It's good. But it, it is a wimpy word. It doesn't get at it. You know. Yeah. Rick, upstairs here as a young boy with Roosevelt Spiegel, pounding it out on the piano. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Stand alone on the Word of God, B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, see, you don't want to commit to a word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a good way to think. I mean, uh, I just think that we all have to th sort of think about these, you know, what... How, especially how do we defend the faith? I, I was once, like Jerry said, exactly, I was at Wheaton College, and these guys, I said, I believe in inerrancy, but I, I don't use the term, and I don't like the term, and I'm not going to say it. And, and they, it, the conversa that was a conversation stopper. We, you're not going to, okay, and then I said, all right, the Bible's inerrant. I said it. You know? And then, they, then we could move on in the conversation. I mean, they use the word as a sort of like. I think some people reason why they have a problem with it is because they think if they believe that it's inerrant, that they have to understand it all. Uh, I want to go back to that yeah. story of Billy Graham. Yeah. So in 1949, he's up at Forest Home. Yeah. And, he, and, the and I might have the story wrong if I do correct me. But no, you got it right. The yeah. idea was, and he said, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know yeah. if I, I can't prove yeah. everything yeah. in this Bible yeah. that I understand yeah. perfectly. Yeah. 
but I'm going to go on the fact right. that this is God's word, God's inspired right. word, you know, God's infallible word, yeah. and I'm going to move on yeah. from here. Yeah, and, and, and I think that prayer is the great thing we all have to do at some point. Say, look, we're going to, this Bible, this is what we're going to, you know, anchor ourselves in. I just want to quickly say before we leave, is the, the term inerrant, when you read the people who are like J.I. Packer talking about is they have great ways to discuss the mathematics in something. You know, there's, there's lots of little things like we talked about with Erasmus. People are all the time finding little things in the Bible that need to be maybe looked at a little differently. You know, uh, most of us use mathematical terms in, in loose ways some ways and strict ways other ways. And, you know, and, and we just, you need to let the Bible be the Bible. It is inerrant, but it is it's the Bible. It speaks. You listen. You know, kind of thing, right? It speaks. We listen. And so let's close off there, and we'll come back and, and uh, carry this on further. But I am working toward this idea, which we sung in the hymn today, with bold accord. Uh, you know, we can, as a church, come together at the journey's end, okay? And uh, here on earth, in this earthly world, both the Roman Catholics coming out of the Reformation and the, the Lutherans and the Calvinists and all affirm that the scriptures is the only thing that we can really unite on, you know, that we can fully sort of say that this is our authoritative foundation. All right, let me say a prayer. God, thank you for this class. Thanks for the fun of it. Help us to be wise. Help us to speak these words to our community out here and that to be a place where where we are known to be founded in your inspired scriptures, Lord. And then uh, that makes us work in the society, work in the world in so many good ways. Amen. 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 Thank you very much.